welcome everybody welcome to sweeney versus bard um tonight we have a special guest max border borders he's um doing a course with us at parallax called the gray robes initiation into a global digital priesthood um so this is the first time the three of us have had had a conversation and it's kind of an opportunity um to uh to see you know you two guys you two guys make make sparks together they the, I, the, I want to talk about the course and um which feels to me like it, there's some there's some bard aesthetic there there's some bard influence definitely in in in, in uh and and definitely uh it feels to me like there's something between you two guys that that, that is definitely worth talking about so so why don't I pass to Max first to to just give us give us the the uh, the quick version of of the course and uh, and then Alexander just jump in whenever you feel like it. Well, first I want to acknowledge the the, the Bard energy infusing this. You, you can't help it. Uh, <laughs> the the man's force is, is to be reckoned with, and so. If you don't reckon with it uh, without integrating it, then it'll just knock you over. So I'm going to integrate some of those, some of those bardisms, some of those influences. But it's also an issue that I think we have connected in particularly important ways, all three of us really, on this idea of of the gray robes, on the idea that something that there must be something more than just um, a connection among people who have a passing interest in cryptocurrencies, technology, decentralization, the stuff that Bard has been working on for years in terms of netocracy um, and asking ourselves what are the what are not only the philosophical but ethical, behavioral, psychological underpinnings of this that unite us. So certainly there are going to be diverse elements in any community like that. That's unavoidable. And, and indeed, it's probably welcome, but there has to be unifying elements too. And that unification has to happen by virtue of a vector uh, somewhat less autistic, somewhat less techie than just interested in tech, interest in technology and coding. So we want it, for lack of a better way of putting it, to be something of a corpus colossum that unites the left brain techies of the world with all their promise, with all their ability to create, their generative ability with a right brain of art, culture, and philosophy that informs it so that this so that information can pass and influence can pass back and forth over this corpus colossum and create something that's bigger than the sum of the parts. That's the essence of the gray robes idea. And of course, um, as, as you know, just to, to, you know, that really comes out of, and I have to acknowledge it. I don't know whether and to what extent it still does, but there was a time when Silicon Valley was really the vanguard of this kind of thinking where people were neither left nor right. And so you had some very smart people who were doing some really interesting writing, blogging and so on around this time, one of which is uh, Scott Alexander, which is a pseudonym, who identified the gray tribe. 
And so we're riffing on that a little bit. Balaji Srinivasan has picked up on it. Um, but these guys are very Silicon Valley. They're very about, uh, they're very much about entrepreneurial ventures and innovations. And it's time that that got married to some sort of more deeply philosophical and cultural priors. I can give an example of this. Um, Max and I sort of been going around each other for years. Uh, I discovered Max years ago. I thought he was German at first, probably because I, un, you know, I underate Americans <laughs> or something like that. He, he seemed like a really smart German tech guy who'd figured out the culture was important or something. And um, I found many of the ideas in his book to very similar to mine. Because Max is younger than me and started writing late, later, I, I started describing Max as the Pope version of my sauce. Like, if you think my books are too heavy, go to Max Porter's right away. He's figured out to present my ideas or similar ideas to a larger audience. But that's probably just because he's American and he's younger and he started writing later after me. Because when it comes to depth, I think all three of us are as deep as you could possibly be. But I'll give an example of where Max and I write into each other. I went to Prospera, this community on the Roatan Island outside Honduras. It's being described as they're building a new Hong Kong or something like that for Central America. But it's actually perfect for this whole Balaji Srinivasan network state charter city movement that's going on at the moment, uh, you know, about building these sort of sophisticated city states. Of course, Singapore, Dubai are there already what could be even better done than they do. And that's the idea. And, and that's what's being done in Prospera. And Max was there just a few weeks before me. We we're attending two different conferences and we we're obviously hired to be the philosophers at those conferences. And of course, we come there and speak philosophy. We speak the arts. You know, we talk about the things that we always talk about. And that's why I thought it was great to have Max here in Sweden versus Bar, because I think it fits in perfectly with Andrew as well. It's, it's, it's the spiritual artistic side to things and to the technological revolution that we're looking at. But I was there in Prospera, I gave my speech. Max had been there a few weeks before. He was very enthusiastic in the whole thing. I love the place. I will go there again. I'm sure Max will too. Um, so I highly recommend people to check out that place. But the question was more like, what are Max and Alexander doing here already? Like, the yoga studios aren't there yet. And five years from now, after the belt, all these luxury apartments and built the tax haven that it really is, and, and you know, built the gene therapy clinics they're building at the moment, you know, wealthy Americans will go there to get their fucking gene therapy because it takes too long to get the permission to do it in America. So they'll go there instead. Probably the medical tourism industry in Panama will soon discover that Prospera is a great jurisdiction for their activities. Probably soon... You know, El Salvador, having recognized Bitcoin as an official currency, will discover that El Salvador is a territory that'll be full of programmers and coders from all over the world, but the jurisdiction is going to be Prospera. Not El Salvador, because you can't trust the courts in El Salvador, but you can trust the courts of Prospera. That's exactly how Prospera has this potential to be the Singapore of Central America, which is exciting. But further down the line, a few years down the line, they will think about building an opera house. And that's what they need us. And beyond that, when they need all three of us, is when they start thinking we need to build a church with a cathedral of some kind, and we can't just build another Catholic church. It has to be something much more profound. It has to be something much more challenging for people today to attract people to move to this place. And that's where all of this comes in. What we're trying to figure out is how art and spirituality 
will express themselves in a digital era and who will do it and why it's important. But right now, uh, it's the builders that are out there. I went to Balaji Srinivasan's event in, in Holland. It was a huge road show, let's put it that way. But it was all about construction. And I was there and I was asked why you're not on the stage. And I said, it's at least five years too early for Alexander Bar to be on the stage here. Because this is all about construction right now. It's all about building places like Prospera. It's building these network states, building charter states. The engineers are all over the place. The technologists are all over the place. But the places they plan to build, when they model them, okay, it all looks like, you know, perfect utopias for American nuclear families or something. And it's dead boring. It's just dead boring. It, it, there's no culture there. And um, five years down the line, I think they're going to look around and say, uh, wait, wait a second, for these places to be attractive and not just be tax havens in tropical climates, they need culture. Yeah. And what is culture? Culture is art and spirituality. And that's where the gray robes come into the picture. I would also add to that not just the not just meat space or terra firma jurisdictions, but really what Balaji Srinivasan is envisioning, um, which before I ever heard of the network state, I called cloud governance, right? Or cloud communities. And cloud communities are forming to some degree already um in in what we have, but they're ephemeral and they are usually based on a set of interests. So as Balaji imagines that what happens first is that he, he what he calls the one commandment, okay, which is that you have to have some sort of moral substrate, something that people can rally around that they believe in, that they're willing to live and die for, right? That, that, that at the very least would connect them in the cloud as a community and get them to be on chain together and say a DAO. But DAOs as such are just, they're just an, an abstraction of boring as shit, right? So we don't want boring as shit. We want something you're willing to live and die for. And if you don't know what that is besides DAOs itself, because you're a nerd, then you need to, then let's present the other side of the brain, the corpus callosum, or the head, heart, and gut in alignment, if you like your Gurdjieff. And that's really what we're trying to bring to this because we know that these guys are building something special and we know that there is there are vestiges of something that are driving them besides just building it for its own sake. They're exiting something that isn't working. They are sensing that there's that there are enemies out there, right? Um, and they they are ready. They are primed to have a more complete philosophical binding for their community. And these invisible threads that unite people in the first stage of Balaji's, uh, what he calls startup societies, has got to be this, this moral core. Now, Balaji doesn't give us a moral core. He says it could be whatever the hell, right? And, and I think he's smart to do so. He's providing us a blueprint for building network states. But now comes the time for the bards. It, it's time for the pamphleteers and the philosophers to come and say, here's what we've got. And I think Bard's right. To some degree, it might be Catholicism because it is Central America after all, but it must also be something else. And I'm not saying necessarily that we are trying to found a religion, but if that's what evolves, that's what evolves. We are trying to 
found in some sense a fraternal order, a sororal order, a place where people can come together around a set of shared values and, and a mode and manner of seeing, being, and becoming. Let me you know, just, I'm wondering about this question of religious innovation, because that's that's a very interesting question, because people try to make new religions all the time and they always fail or, you know, that the newest religions are probably the worst religions, you know, the cults and, and Scientology and, and whatnot. So but I do think that religion has to be innovative at the same time. So I, I kind of my feeling is like bring in the old religions and, and work with them as as a basis, you know. Um, I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that, Andrew. So yeah. you, you just you're just spot on, um, and I'm glad you got into the into the conversation here because that's what we need. You, uh, I think there are precursors to everything that happens in history. And precursors are things that probably normally would just have been marginal and stayed marginal, but because something happened, usually a huge technological revolution of some kind, like the internet, the revolution of the internet, we tend to look at history afterwards, like there were signs there already, like, um, you know, you go back to 1950 and you look, look at cybernetics and it was like the nerdiest thing ever to deal with. And now it looks like it was the future. The people who were cyberneticists in the 1950 knew the potential of computers, they knew the potential of computers being connected to one another, they knew that would change the world forever. There, there were prophets like Norbert Weiner there already who figured that out in the 1950s. I figured out in 1987. I'm considered a prophet. There were people who figured that out in the 1950s. So the question is then, if you, if you, you try to look at precursors to spirituality in the digital age, then the question is, why did we drop Christianity at such a dramatic level? I mean, we religion is one thing you change very, very gradually. Uh, you know, we could talk about religious reformations. They take hundreds of years when they happen. So we don't drop religions without a reason. And when we do drop them, we tend to drop them completely. All right. So if you look at Nietzsche's The Last Man, which obviously is around us everywhere today, um, and we look at the death of the Christian God that Nietzsche described in the 19th century, then the question is, why the hell did we start importing Eastern spirituality on a large scale after 1945? That's not without a reason. There's a very good reason for it. Women have done it much more than men. Why did we import Eastern spirituality? Because it was older, it was better, it was more grounded than whatever spirituality we had. I'm not a big fan of Christianity and Islam. I'm not, and I don't think they will last. And I think the secularization of the Christian world will happen in the Muslim world even faster. I make a big bet on that for the next 50 years. And I think the fundamentalist sort of outbreaks we have right now from Christians and Muslims around the world are just a perfect example of the supernova phenomenon. Like you explode into fundamentalism before you collapse, simply because you do not believe yourself in your own religion any longer. I think these Christian converts you see around us these days are, are ultimately nihilists and they're very cynical. You know, so I'm, I'm saying if Buddhism is the first wave, you've heard me say this before, Buddhism is the first wave, big wave of Eastern spirituality being important. And that's where you are located, Andrew, right in the middle of Varyana Buddhism. If Taoism is going to be the second way, because we got 100 million, soon 100 million Chinese people in exile who are leaving communist China, because it's basically done with. They're leaving and they're taking their creativity with them out of communist China to other places in the world. And, and then the third wave, as I 
prophesize would be Zoroastrianism. I give a good bet on that one because the Persian of the three religions is the one closest to, to Western culture. So we got these three coming. Now the question is, why are we so interested in Eastern spirituality? Starting with Schopenhauer, who inspired Nietzsche. Schopenhauer was a Buddhist. We would call him Buddhist today. Now, starting with that, why is the turn here away from Christianity Islam? It's not it's not fashions, these things. It's, it's not just like trends. Like, I'm tired of that. I'm going to pick up this. That's not how it works. We have to have a spirituality we can believe in. It has to be grounded. And like you say, Andrew, Americans have been terrible at it. Americans have invented Jehovah's Witnesses. They've invented the Mormons. They've invented Scientology. I mean, what I call the Disney World Triad of America is America's big failure. America's terrible at religion. Terrible. So at least the East invented three fantastic religions we can believe in. They were developed along trade routes. Hello, decentralization. You know, all the ideas we have that what we're really fighting for today is to take digital away from centralization, away from the dictators and the tyrants, because they're all going to create police states if they can. We want to take it away from that opportunity and instead move it into decentralization, move power back to the people. And I think these spiritualities offer that. It has to be something credible that is both religion and decentralization at the same time. So I, I was would, thinking about... I just, just go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Andrew. No, I just I was just thinking about the Karmapu who came to uh, the U.S. and he went to see the Hopi Indians because I think there's also that stratum of of spirituality in American culture, which is very powerful, even though it's been somewhat destroyed that, you know, might arise again in, in some kind of way. But anyway, oh, absolutely, but, uh, absolutely. I'm yeah. always talking about Peru and Mexico and certainly North American Indians. What is Camille Pagla doing today? She's re rewriting the history of North America. It's a huge product. She's been doing it for years. Why? To get at the spirituality of the Native American Indians and take it seriously. That's where you have to go. You have to go deeper, deeper, deeper. You cannot invent from out of thin air to do something like religion seriously. Yeah, that I agree with, deeper and older, yeah. So I would, <clears throat> I would slightly reframe it. I agree with a lot of what Bard says, and I've been influenced by it, certainly. Um, for me, I think the important thing is there's, there's an example. In fact, I heard in, in Bard in your podcast with Aubrey Marcus the other day. I think it was you who mentioned uh, Cyrus and his conquest, right, it, of honoring what was already there in terms of uh, religious affiliation of the people. We, we could just we could just remind the listeners that Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon in 539 before Christ. I consider this the biggest event in antiquity. And what it did was that he shocked the world by not killing the Babylonians and boiling their children in oil, like everybody had done before him. He rather invited the Babylonians to be part of his empire, and then he accused them of not being Babylonian enough and kissed the feet of their own god. The most shocking event ever. Changed history forever. So, yeah, go on, Max. Well, and then after that, we I just I just happened to be watching a show the other night on Netflix, which is Alexander, the making or making of a God. I think it's what it's called as a subtitle. He goes to and uh, Alexander goes to Egypt. He's Macedonian. He's Greek in his in his outlook. And yet he is. He's turned into some measure of a God through ceremonial means that um call, prompts him to not only found alexandria but also to to create a a syncretic 
um, so this happens again. And in, in the in this film, he goes to Babylon and he's in the in the palace, in the royal palace where his enemy, Darius, was. And he, if I'm not mistaken, lifts up the, a statue that had been toppled and wants to show respect to it. What he's doing is he's he's doing something that that um, the the Freemasons really got cotton onto later, which is syncretic practice, which is this idea of we respect the features of other religions and integrate them into the corpus of our our organization, right? If we're going to reign, and. In, in some sense, I think a decentralized version of this has to hold sway, right? So I'm in North America. I want to see um, burgeoning gray robes order in the manner that is parallel with the, um, with the Freemasons. Freemasons yeah. never sought to replace religion, rather to augment or complement it. Yeah, and so, so they, they, it's the same origin. Here's the point. Hellenism yeah. was fantastic. Hellenism is a really good place to start to have the answers to what we're going to do today. Yes. Massive paradigm shift. Uh, the Greeks discovered Persian culture. Uh, they were completely stunned by it. Aristotle was Alexander the Great's teacher. And Aristotle basically told Alexander the Great, do like the Persians do. Be Persian yourself and then take over the Persian Empire. Because the Persian Empire had its own internal conflicts at the time, so it was weakened. And because it was weakened, Alexander the Great's army could basically conquer the entire empire. There were a lot of Persians who loved Alexander the Great, said, yeah, let's have him. You know, <laughs> I'm a Zoroastrian myself, my name is Alexander. You can, yeah, I've been told a lot of stories about the complicated history of the Persians and Alexander the Great. But he did unite the empire, and basically took over the empire, and that's what you can do. And he hijacked the emperor more or less, and that led to Hellenism. And of course, you look at the city of Alexandria. Why is it located where it is? Because Egypt was isolated, and Alexander the Great opened it up. And to trade with Egyptians, the Greeks had to have a harbor in Egypt. And sim he simply built the harbor of Alexandria, and it became the biggest city in the world. A trading post, again. So I think these patterns are the ones we're looking for, and they were looking for where spirituality and arts come into the picture. Oh, then it turns out that the golden ages of art have always been these periods. Hellenism was amazing. You know, if you go to India and you find Buddha statues in India, well, it was the Greeks who taught the Indians how to build Buddha statues. They didn't build Buddha statues when the Buddha was around. And they're based in like a lot of Egyptian art as well, like they're, they're kind of... Um, you know, the, the Tonkas and things like that, people think they traded all over the place. That's yeah, exactly yeah. the point. And that's what I'm talking about here. We need to go back into history. Like you always have to do it to paradigm shift. And this is definitely paradigm shift. It's like, it's like everything is zero. It's just like, okay, we start again. First question, what does it mean to be human? Okay. To understand what it means to be human in any paradigm and what it means to be human in this specific paradigm what I call archetypology and paradigmatics. You gotta do the archetypology first. You gotta figure out what it means to be you. You gotta figure out what your genes tell you, your gene plex, what, what is that? And then you can add a mean plex to that, which is specific to digital age, which is all about how are you successful as a human who knows himself in the digital age?
But the first thing you need to do is go deeper back into history. And then we discover, okay, the big challenge right now is that centralization is back. You can use technology to control everybody on the planet and you can create the absolute madness of total tyranny. The Chinese are going for it. We don't want it. Okay, so we don't want that. We gotta come up with an alternative. We gotta come up with an alternative quickly. And here's the point. Freemasons came out of this. The Freemasons came out of Mithraism. Mithraism was the military order on, under which the Roman army ran for 600 years. And Mithraism was imported from Persia to the Roman Empire. And what did Mithraism do? It organized men in a hierarchy where they could climb within the hierarchy, but the hierarchy was more important than they ever were. You were completely submitted to the hierarchy. This is exactly, this is exactly and this is exactly, um, and, and I don't want to go too far away from um, syncretism, um, but just a moment, just for a moment, I, 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 there's a guy, Dave Snowden, who you guys may be familiar with, <laughs> oh, <yeah>. who is, <laughs> uh, he's, he's a lovely guy, piece of work. Um, but he absolutely loathes anything to do with stage theory, right? And of course, you know, people in our in our circles dabble in that stuff, and we see it as a framework of sorts. Now, he loves to dabble in frameworks, just not that one. But in any case, what I like about the idea of an internal hierarchy is something that is is more a framework to become, because you're constantly in the process of becoming, that never stops, even into death. And this is a way that you can, <clears throat> that you can find a ladder to your aspirational self, right? It gives us this. It's not a hierarchy that subordinates others to you necessarily, although they, that may be necessary for certain kind of organizational functions but rather a way of you or, or me to acknowledge my humility, right? That I have further to go, that I always have further to go. So this idea of stages, this constant process of unfolding may not be linear. It may be fractal, it may come round again, it may go back to the ancients, but whatever it does, it's a process that continues and that framework invites it. Now, You're I just describing to... religious schools. You know, that's what they do. Um, yes, and that's what I wanted to ask you about Gurdjieff, uh, Sweeney, because you're you're the you're the Gurdjieff guy, and he really is in many respects an embodiment of East meets West syncretism. Yeah. I mean, yeah, what... I think he's the most successful guy from my research to to bring those two worlds together. Um, you know, and very early before everybody else. Um, he went to Tibet and he also went, you know, to Mount Athos. He went all over the place. He went up and down the Silk Road, you know, but he also, uh, yeah, he, he, he kind of, yeah, uh, his theory of, of the fourth way is, is about what you're talking about as well. Like I, I, I keep seeing what people are talking about in terms of his, you know, his formula. So, so, you know, you know, Alexander talks about logos, mythos, pathos. He talks about the three brains and the relationship between the, the three brains, which have to be synchronized, you know, in order, you know, in order to become full, fully human. And which is really what is his whole, his whole, you know, very bizarre and, uh, you know, uh, his very bizarre and interesting uh, philosophy is all, is all about. 
So it's it's the relationship between these that need. So the problem he sees is that we're fragmented. Like there's some nerdy logos guys over here, and then there's some Jungian mythos guys over here, and you know, and then uh, <clears throat> that's there's that's just exactly right. Total body the, people the priest, down the here, that have here no, and the right, but they have to. There has to be the they have to be, find a way to 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 work in in relationship with each other which it works on the macrocosmic level like and the micro you know the body and and the entire cosmos basically this is what Dave Snowden hates you know uh, yeah. and I have to honor him I totally agree with him he's chasing pillar saints right he just doesn't use our vocabulary at least not yet um he's not listening too much of the people to be honest about it but Dave is fantastic I have to admit that but what Dave Snowden does is he's seen pillar saints who are thinking of a hierarchy of spiritual awareness where some people put themselves at the top of it and Ken Wilber might deserve a high position as a hierarchy the probably Wilberians I think they deserve that high position too they do nothing you know so so Gurdjieff is the perfect point here because he is he's east meets west it's also perfect for digital he really is. He really is. And if you take the narratology that John Sertiquist and I worked on, the logos, mythos, pathos, and you want to implement narratology and turn it into spiritual school, Gurdjieff did exactly that. That's why he's there. So also, he's not a popular uh, sort of guy. He's not a guru because he's he's challenging. So you know, he's, he's never going to be. He's a Sufi without. He's being absolutely Muslim, challenging. In, he's in, Sufi in, without in being. Sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a strong element of Sufism in him. People just always think that he's because when I read his stuff, I think he's a Vajrayanist, and you know, uh, you know, Christian mystic thinks he's a Christian mystic, and Sufis think he's a Sufi. But he he's sort of he's sort of meta all of those things, and he, you know, he's a, he's a, he's an amazing. Um, you know, I think he's he's going to be more and more important, and I think what you're looking at in terms of this gray robes thing, in terms of finding. Uh, it's it's quite Gurdjieffian, like it's it's aiming in that direction. It feels like to me. If you go back it, to the Mithraic order here, um, yeah, the top. What's really interesting is the leadership. The Mithraic order was immunized against tyranny. How do you do that? Well, you recognize that you can have two leaders at the top, and they gotta be in such a relationship that are completely dependent on each other and can't rule without the other guy. So they both have to be the top guy, and at the same time, there's a weakness to them or a negation to them that prevents them from becoming the tyrant. That's when I started doing this whole thing of the two-headed phallus. I discovered it was perfect in the Mithraic order, and I started researching where did that idea come from, because it works wonderfully. It's the priest and the king, or the priest and the chief. If you use the vocabulary we use, you can stay with that. The priest and the chief are the two highest categories in the Mithraic order. They're on a par. They're the top guys, but... At the same time, the priest is number seven, higher than chief was number six. Now, why would priest be higher than chief? Simply because priest is older and has more knowledge. But in return, the chief is the father of the next leaders. So what they did in the Mithraic order is he said, the chief can have sons and his sons can inherit. The priest cannot have a son who inherits anything. The priest's son has to be like any other guy out there. And by allowing the chief to have a son who could inherit the leadership, you arrange that there's another guy on top of the chief who is the priest. So there's like there's like this terror balance between the priest and the chief that they're forced to admire each other and lead together. So not a single guy can ever be the top guy in the Mithraic order. 
This was inherited from the Zoroastrian orders of the Persian Empire. So the idea in the Persian Empire, which was the first empire that lasted longer than any other empire ever. So you're going to do empire theory as the Persians. And the priest, the Mobed and Mobed, the highest priest, had his own court, his own capital. And the highest king, the king of the kings, the Shah, the emperor, had his own capital, his own court. They were never the same place. But the most common way to inherit these positions was that the son of the king of the kings was the next king of the kings. The second son became the next moment, the next priest. The priest never had any sons. And the whole idea the Catholic Church inherited, the priests should not have children, was exactly a way of giving them the ultimate power without then constructing a family and having sons who inherited their power, which is actually what corrupts the system. So the pointer is that by keeping the two most prominent things that are attracted to power, which is like, I'm going to inherit the whole thing and I have my sons inherit me and afterwards. And the other one is that I'm just going to be the most knowledgeable, knowledgeable person out there to conserve the community the most. By having those two things separated into priest and chief, you have a leadership and you start immunizing against turning. The tyrant is therefore always the guy who wants to be both priest and king at the same time. We must always stop that. And they did it within the Mithraic order. The Freemasons said this. It was completely ingrained in the Freemasons. You never find a single leader in the Freemason lodges ever. And that's, 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 that's exactly what I was going to turn to next. There's an Anderson Constitution written in the 1700s that is an early, well, there's not a, a that it's a, a constitution um, for the for the Freemasons and for the Grand Lodge of London, if I recall, that was republished in the United States by one Benjamin Franklin, who's one of our American founders. Okay. Um, now, all of the signatories of the Declaration of Independence, uh, with the exception of a couple, were Freemasons. It, it, it seems to be bizarrely that Thomas Jefferson was not, although he would have been perfect as a Freemason. And I admire him very much. However, this idea of the priest class, the Freemasons as the priest class, as the as the higher phallus animates American history to a degree that a lot of people don't realize. It also and it definitely here, but here's what happened in 1850. The Grand Lodge of London. Uh, revised the Constitution, the original Anderson Constitution, to go against against rebels. And in going against rebels, they pulled the Freemasons into the imperial order, right? And so the Freemasons began to become handmaidens to the imperial order. Now, one could argue that that's good or bad, depending on whether you're an imperialist. Um, but when you have very important people in India under the British Raj becoming part of the Freemasons, they are joining the priesthood, which is higher higher in some sense than the power structure of the Raj itself, except in London. So I get what you're meaning, and it's exactly what happened. And of course, now the Freemasons are losing their power. They're they're freighted with too much too much other stuff for a modern society um and of course so of course i think mm -hmm. the gray robes if if anyone is to aspire to be the the freemasons of decentralization if i can crudely call it that 
then we we have to make sure that it equips people with tools of in, open inquiry and pluralism, but not freight them with too much tradition and uh, stuff that just piles up and and makes it too heavy a burden. Ceremony, right? Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, all, all that ceremony, all that ceremony, which is interesting, and, and but but uh, it has to be a living ceremony. Like it has to be, has to be alive. I feel like the Freemasons, the, the, yeah, they're they're not adapted to the time we're in right now, which which is is kind of like everything is opening up. Well, the pointer is that America was built by Freemasons and not by Christians. That's exactly what Christian minorities like the Puritans came from the UK over to America and settled because they escaped the pressure from the Anglican Church or the Catholic Churches of Europe. And yeah. they were welcomed as minorities. And that's why they accepted the American Constitution. So America needs to go back to its constitution, understand where it came from, understand the beauty of Freemasonry as it was. But we need a new Freemasonry for the new paradigm. We can't have the old paradigm all over again. The, the, the point with this, with the paradigm shift is obvious today is that uh, the algorithms are now everywhere. And the algorithms were there before what we called AI started appearing because AI just applied algorithms on just about everything. And if the algorithms were free, but we started using them 25 years ago, they're now being controlled more and more because people have realized what amazing, powerful tools they are and that power resides with the guys who control the algorithms. So that's exactly why all the most powerful tech guys want to go for AI right now because they want to get at the algorithms and control them. But here's the point. The old institutions that are dying, politics, um, you know, old industry, and and uh, academia with mass media attached to it. All these old institutions are attacking the algorithms. The attacks comes through the manipulation of the algorithm from politics, you know, woke culture, shit like that. Uh, the corruption of the algorithm is like, if you can't get any attention online, you throw money at your problem, try to scream in people's faces, and you become the biggest spammer ever. That's what old industry is doing constantly. We hate ads because of it, advertising is over. And the third one is, of course, academia and mass media that are attacking everything online and saying it's fake news or whatever, it's bad or horrible or whatever. And, and they're then trying to conform us into their worldview because we have very different worldviews today. And we all make our own opinions as online people. When we go online, we can make our own opinion about everything. And, yeah. and they want to conform us into thinking we still have to spend fortunes to go to Harvard and Stanford to get anywhere in the world when we realize that Harvard and Stanford are both dying, at least Harvard. <laughs> it's over. So, so it's a paradigm shift. But what returns is that power to human beings in an archetypological sense always starts with the real. The real is what intrudes our fantasy. The real just throws itself into our world. And that was the internet. And it was data. And data now beats capital. Data beats money. Money has become a form of data. That's exactly what Bitcoin is both, because Bitcoin is the new way of doing money, meaning that it's data decentralized. Here it is. And of course, all the world's central banks are terrified of Bitcoin because Bitcoin will probably at the end of the day ruin the business. So that's a perfect example of, of data eating the old paradigm, meaning that money no longer rules the world, data rules the world. And whoever's got the data and can process the data in a clever way will be the ruler. So 
Big tech, as we know today, technology that already has established the first meritocracy, the power of the real. The question, though, is that power is never complete until we got the triad, the return of the triad. It's, again, the same triad, narratological triad, gorgeous mm -hmm. triad, comes back. The other two aspects of power are symbolic and imaginary. The imaginary used to be the monarchy. It was replaced by politics. The symbolic used to be the church. It was replaced by academia. So the question is, who takes the role of imaginary and who takes the role of symbolic when the tech barons have started ruling the world because we need to complement them with the other two functions? So we let the tech barons go off. Balaji Srinivasan is one of them. And now they want to build these city-states. Perfect. It's a new dark ages. Why not? Because dark ages are decentralized. So let's right. go for that. But, but they're the going to need is, an architect. Where does where, where symbolic and imaginary come into the picture? That's the question. Sorry. I'd sorry to jump in. I just like, so I'm getting the sense that these guys who have all this incredible technological power in, in the paradigm shift, in a way, they're quite ignorant in a lot of ways about life <laughs> because they are so incredibly, you know, mechanically, you know, they're just, they're just hyper engineers, right? But, but they need, they need priests, they need artists, they need, you know, they need people who are going to help them build something, you know, build something beautiful, at least if they're rather than just more, you know, fast, powerful uh, machines. Right? Better, faster, oh, they, they, they're naive about the politics. They're very naive about the politics. They don't realize that if 40,000 people move to one of these charter cities in the tropics and they're wealthy and it's a tax save and they got deep therapeutics, those 40,000 people start disagreeing on how the colony is going to be run very quickly. These tech guys don't get that. They think it's, mm -hmm. oh, it's just the rationalists. It's, oh, it's just, just so, oh, that's, that's exactly right. Self-organization is going to take over. It's, everybody's They're, just, you know. The guy with the biggest dick is going to want to go down there and plan the city, have all the techno technological substrate yeah. planned out. They're not, they're not in doing protocol design. And this is what's beautiful about Prospera is it's, it's more about protocol design than it is about it's or to put it in techie terms, it is what is the social operating system rather than what are the apps, right? So now this is why Bard says you got to wait five years and come along and then we can start talking about what the apps are, <laughs> to, to put it in their language. The apps are, okay, a cultural fixture, a spiritual fixture, uh, a, a fucking yoga studio, whatever, right? These are the apps that um get plugged into the social operating system that they're developing and that's great but you can't have one without the other because nobody cares about linux that nobody uses right it's got to have apps it's got to have I, users it, exactly i love these guys so do you max I mean, we meet these guys and we just we just encourage them to build shit and when i was in prospera i got to ask the question at the end of the conference so what is your contribution here well you know what Maybe the Mexican drug cartels are going to shoot the fashion models in Tulum in the next two years or something. Bet on it because build some fucking yoga studios. And they're just like, why? Because otherwise your wives are going to be terribly bored here. <laughs> and they're going to leave you. And they're going to drop you. This is boring. Yeah, it looks beautiful. It's luxury apartments uh, built in the tax save in the tropics. Uh, but, you know, 
even Panama has a hard time convincing retired Americans with tons of money to move there because it's boring, right? Uh, and boring is actually where you start when you start doing art. And Unless then once just... you do art, you do spirituality. And not Unless there's no art, there's no spirituality in these places. There's none of it. And full-time ecotourism isn't interesting to me. What I see when I go there is a canvas. Yes. Like my imagination runs wild. And that's what's so inspiring to me about it. It's because there's nothing there yet. And it's not to say I want to pave paradise and put up a parking lot, right? It's more that we can imagine a more heavily peopled island with interesting folks of different backgrounds collaborating in interesting ways to yield something that we couldn't possibly have predicted. But we're one of those participants creatively, imaginatively, that is a gorgeous vision. And that's really kind of like a kind of a simplified version of the gray robes. Yeah. You know, it's like that's what we're about. And and so I'm I'm but I also don't know how to I don't think it's it's going to be an important thing to tell uh, tech geeks that they're too geeky. They need to be seduced by coming out from from just their heads and feel what does it mean to feel i think I this think, is one i think maybe we can't because they can't feel that way uh, i think <laughs> they will build the luxury apartments they won't listen to us that's why i say it's gonna take five years and then their wives will go to those luxury apartments live there for two months and be bored to death and then go back to new york or something so it's just like uh, you know, Singapore had a yeah, the wives always <laughs> Singapore is still boring, but it's better than it used to be, but it's still fucking boring. And the only way to survive in Singapore, if you live there, is to go to Bangkok or Bali and party real hard occasionally, because otherwise you get too bored with it. You know, Dubai, Dubai is more exciting than the rest of the Arab world. That's why it's on the map. And that's why Dubai is exciting. But actually, it's not the funniest place in the world either. But it's doing better than the competition. Let's put it that way. Dubai is the new Beirut because du Beirut was du blown Dubai up. Dubai is just, yeah, it's like it's like Arab Miami. It just doesn't seem that interesting to me. Um, no, it, 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 you're right. It, it's the worst part of Las Vegas mixed with the worst part of Miami into one. That's what Dubai is. Yeah. But it works. It's got a huge airport. It's got low taxes, high rents, but low taxes. That's what oh, they're want. doing a fabulous job and it's beautiful. Yeah. And it's a good model. And what's great about Singapore and Dubai and probably even Djibouti now, which is really taking off. The great thing is that there are city states like that. And over here in Europe, we have small countries like Slovenia, Montenegro and Estonia that are moving this direction too. They're looking seriously at the network state and chartered city models and see if they can use them because they're small countries. So they they can also benefit from these models, certainly. The important thing is that if anybody anywhere does anything in the world that works, then people can mimic it. The only problem we always have with humans is to make them dare to do something and then do it. And if it works, then other people can copy it. So we see we see how that goes, but but I would say that I don't think I don't think I've given up on the geeks. I don't think I can give the geeks a heart. I don't think the geeks will ever get Gurdjieff. I don't think they should. I think they should be geeks, and I think they should build and build and build. Let them do it, but they will yeah. probably make their own mistakes and discover. 
uh -oh. that they didn't sell the luxury flats even as they wanted to build and therefore they're starting and they have problems with territorial conquest around them like people want to take their territory from them they've underrated all these problems when you deal with other human beings so but they're just builders let them build first but then we have to figure out our limit and i would suggest the gray ropes to me is symbolic function that's what i'm excited about mm -hmm. but it's not imaginary I do not think the great ops should aspire towards the replacement of the political. I think that's the hardest game of all. Rather, we should be there and make sure the political happens, but what replaces politics, the sensocracy, is free and open. And I think our message needs to be that we don't want communist China. We want a free and open society. And we want the sensocracy with all the sensors everywhere and all the cameras and microphones everywhere. We still want that to be free and open, which is an enormous challenge to try to present a model where that could work. That is the most important philosophical product in the world today. And I think that's where we should put ourselves and say, we're, we're aspiring to be the symbolic order in digital. The name for yeah. that is the gray ropes. So th thank you. I'm glad that you like that. And I am so happy to, that you're willing to embrace it. Um, and, and it will, you know, we'll see if it, it, it has legs. But yeah, here, well, so here, we have a, we have a friend here who thinks exactly like that, Michael Gibson. Yeah. Again, I want to recommend Gibson's book, uh, you know, Paper Built on Fire. Michael oh, yeah, Gibson's yeah, yeah. book. I think we should kill the universities. I think our most important mission is to kill the universities, not return to the churches as they were and say, no, we do not believe a return to Christianity or Islam will work. Welcome to try if you want to. But I think we need a variety of alternatives. I want to go religious. I want to go spiritual. And I want to go artistic. And I think that's all within the symbolic order. But I've stepped out of politics realizing that, okay, it's better that I work with politicians and vice them rather than become a politician myself. Politics as we know it is over. But it will be replaced by something. The Chinese will figure the, out what they who want Who is the audience? Who is the audience? The, the audience are people. The audience are people who want to move to these network states and charter cities to have a quality of life and enjoy life in these places. Well, so, right now, that's arbitrageurs and crypto geeks. Yes. The very people we're saying we can't reach. Well, I but think you're we saying can. who's the audience no, for the gray no, robes? That's not no, them, right? We can. We reach their wives. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. We reach that kid. We reach people around them. And the thing is that, uh, you know, when I said in Prospera, you need the yoga students, the girls in the room cheered me and said, he gets us. Yeah. Because they, they married the geeks because they love their fucking geek husbands, but they want the fucking yoga studios. Spirituality mm -hmm. usually starts with women. Yeah. Right. So women have already switched religion in in the west women have left christianity on a massive scale women have built yoga studios spiritual centers retreats everywhere it, in the I, worst I'll, form I'll it's called new age yeah. i'll push back against that because i mm -hmm. think some of the i think successful geeks can be can be um find this attractive okay here's what i mean by that and i don't mean for example vitalik buterin Brilliant as the guy is, but he is a human supercomputer, right? It's not clear that he's going to ever have a spiritual turn or a yeah. philosophical turn, right? He's a ratiocination machine, an algorithm ge generator, okay? But there are a I'll lot of- I work on Vitalik. I work on Vitalik. We, we, we oh, explain okay. the Grey Robes mission. So I work well, on that sounds great. But, yeah. someone, but someone who has 
created their software, had their company, is successful, has a little bit of money, is seen as a leader and is admired, and they want something more. They're going down and they're doing ayahuasca ceremonies uh, because they're looking for something more and they're discovering it. Okay, now what? The gray robes are there, right? It's that group. And that means you, the people who are taking that turn, and I know you don't like Wilbur, I know you don't like... Um, um, uh, Claire Graves or Don Beck or whatever, but they're moving out of that commercial scientific and through their woke bullshit, right? Their, their feel-good egalitarianism into something else, something more complicated. They're, they're ascending spiritually, and they're, they're trying in some sense probably to be, and, and, and I, I think this is a great point, if, if Dave Snowden is indeed making this, that they're aspiring to pillar sainthood after this. But we don't want that. We want them to be embodied second tier. I like integral, okay? And I think as long as it has the Gurdjieffian, if that's a word, embodiment aspect to it, the head-heart-gut alignment, where, where your thought, word, and deed practices have a, an effect, a ripple effect, from the enterocosm into the exterocosm, then that's exactly what we're looking for. And those symbolic Silicon Valley successful folks can be exemplars of this, not in a culty kind of way, in a practitioner kind of way, in a in a no 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 wait beautiful wait. You, th you, you you think this is way easier than it is, Max. I want to go back. Here no, to I Andrew. Don't. no, I no, don't. No, I no, no. Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. Oh, I, I got something skeptical. for you too, as well and, here. So, Andrew, you know how hard it is to convince people to go down the Varana path, and a few people actually do it, right? Yeah. No, I would say that that's exactly what I was thinking, uh, Alexander. I was thinking, Gurdjieff would say, it, you know, bless people who don't have a soul. They just don't have a soul. But the gray people are interesting because they have a. They're 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 developing a soul. So those the gray people are rare. They're not. You're not going to convert them. I wouldn't try to convert them. I'm just, um, okay. So then convert I'm anybody. That... I would say that there's. They could be drawn into the gray, but yeah, I mean, Gurdjieff would say conscious suffering. Who wants to buy that, right? You know, so who wants to go in that direction? People just want to have fun and you know ha ha get the latest toys, right? Well, what that's what the, people, then, that's then what people like, want. But what people, I'm worried is, is how many people this... are going to go on the spiritual path? That's 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 not. Yeah, I think Alexander's right here to. to push are we back the only? And... Are we the only members of the priesthood ever? Then. No, no, no. But they're oh, not members. Others. The tech barons are not going to be members of the priesthood. They're all like Vitalik. They're all like Vitalik. Everyone will go after them. The, po the point is, the point is that they will eventually, when they have failed, mm -hmm. when they've dialectically failed at certain yeah. projects, they'll discover, okay, I will fail at this. I'm not good at this. I have to outsource this to somebody else. And then they'll start looking around. And that's what I mean five, 10 years down the line. They start looking yeah. around who this did is... their spiritual journey properly and who was terrible at engineering, but it was really good at spirituality. If, if, you, just watch... if you if you want to foster a tech baron to become a spiritual person, you're fostering a tyrant. You don't want to do that. You want them to realize they cannot be what we are, just like we recognize we're not what they are. I'm not Balaji Srinivasa. 
Not by far. I'm not Vitalik Putrin. I have no aspiration to so be. The, so they should never, ever even think of being gray robes. What if they want no, to be? No, exactly. Then they're tyrants probably coming. The question is, why would a tech baron have that personal side to him? Why, why would they have the personal quality? They're obviously built, archetypologically built, to be engineers, to build shit. Don't aspire yeah. to have them. They have to fail. This is the problem with Christianity. The problem with Christianity and Islam was that mm. they went for missions. They went for winning souls for heaven. They wanted the masses to join them. We are not building another mass religion. That's where we will fail. If you go too quickly towards the pop, towards superficiality, towards winning the masses, we will fail. Then you might as well join Christianity right away if you want to go for mass religion. I think the ages of mass religion are over. I think spirituality is deeper. I think the Tantra versus Sutra divide is necessary for the West to adopt from the East. And that means that certain people go into deep spirituality and focus on that, and they then deliver the byproducts coming out of that. They then deliver the spiritual product coming out of and you go to see them to nourish your spirituality. You don't do what they do. That you is know. fine. I'm yeah, I'm yeah. all about that. Yeah. We started this conversation with you talking about the haste with which this needs to happen because the world is being sinoformed as we speak. Yes. Right. And I feel that sense of urgency. Yes. So while while I I don't want to be rationalistic about imagining what some massive you know, organization of people who are ex exceedingly rare in their, don't, if I bastardize the term, I apologize, archetypology, but these shamanoid types, right? That, that, the, that if they are indeed so rare and they are, they are creating uh, in sort of not an environment of a tantric environment, right? Yeah. For for this, there's there's got to be a mechanism for this um, to be to effectuate outward in the manner of the Freemasons, such that it is a countervailing force to the rapid sinoforming that's happening right now. Okay, so what is our great card? Our great card is that we do freedom, spirituality, and art, and China China won't do that. They'll be terrible at all three. So to get a great art, you need spirituality before that. Is there interest in spirituality in Silicon Valley? Yes, there is. Psychedelics open that door. Again, psychedelics is anti-Christian. Again, there are a few Christians out there who try to unite Christianity and psychedelics. Good luck. You're going to have a horrible time trying to do that. So it turns out that psychedelics was... Could be unified with Peruvian, Mexican, Persian spirituality, for example. It's applicable to Buddhism and Taoism too. So yeah. So which religions do you pick if you have a great psychedelic experience alone or with your wife? If you're a tech baron, you pick one of those religions. Okay. You formally join one of those religions. You have a psychedelic experience. You come out of inspired out of it. And because you're inspired, you innovate and you're a good engineer. Okay. So that turns out that that type of spirituality will not be accepted by communist China but it will be accepted and embraced by us. Okay, so prior to that is freedom. A new report came out today, the day we're recording this conversation, that showed that London is now full of cameras and microphones absolutely everywhere, and the British police are bragging about arresting people constantly for all kinds of things. 
And the Brits were just terrified and realized that America stopped this a long time ago. This is unacceptable in San Francisco and other American cities. London is the worst place in the world if you want to get away from surveillance right now. London is horrible because of surveillance. That's a shock to the Brits. It just happened. That's the police state. Okay. Do the tech parents want to be free? They built their entire fortunes on freedom. They built their entire fortune on entrepreneurship on being able to think freely and create. So they're with us. So they're with us with the values. That's why I want to do philosophy first and state, this is what we need. We need a free and open sensocracy. It sounds like a contradiction in terms, and it is. We want both the cameras and the microphones. We still want the freedom and the openness. We want a lively debate on where we put the limits to the surveillance system because we need to keep freedom. Without the freedom, we're done. Now, we present this case. The tech parents or the guys will come on board with our spirituality and think we're great philosophers. We'll become the thinkers of the tech world. That's exactly what we aspire for first. First card, freedom. Then we discover and we say, okay, that psychedelic trip you did at Burning Man last year, you won't do it in a society that if you don't go with us. Spirituality, that leads to great art, which is that the places we will create, the societies we will create, will have great art in them, which will not happen in tyranny. Tyranny is banal. Art is awful. You know, it, it's Hitler hating the Jews of Vienna for creating great art because his art is miserably boring, right? So the problem is that Hitler and Stalin are boring. That's their problem ultimately. We are artistic and we're pro-art. That's exactly why our model is better. So I think what we need to do is to be specialists of what we do the way the engineer specialists, but we don't want the engineers to be us. I think we should say that, no, you're a fucking great tech baron. Join whatever tech baron society you want, but don't join the gray robes. Let's keep that symbolic order privilege to ourselves. And that's how we gain respect and they understand the value of having us close. Yeah, I was the... watch, watching the social network again thing with Tristan Harris and all those guys basically in one of my courses. And those there's a bunch of people at Silicon Valley just seem very repentant. You know, they seem like they're they're approaching spirituality. They seem like they're like, what the fuck? is is they, they don't seem satisfied with the world that they're they're in you know uh and, and that's perhaps a gray person right somebody who would fall out of you know the google hierarchy or whatever and and finds you know find spirituality in, in some kind of way i think there's a lot of people like to kind of fall out of the of the of the system and I, I and the, the first thing I, is sutra su yeah. is, is sutra they need to find sutra first you know they need to they need to go through this whole process from the beginning you can't just start off with uh, you know um you know wild sort of experiences you have to you have to, it has to be like a real human well and that's process. that's what i'm finding in, in the in, in marketing this initially this course and inviting just anyone to come in right i'm putting it on the internet like come come take this course that and and branding it as an initiation which was kind of a joke it was kind of a little like playful thing and you know and then you have all these these strange people in robes and they look like they're worshiping something that would scare off christians right but already um there are people who have a lot of people who've given me feedback that this has been like oh right so I, there is an element of okay i've given you a i've given you a little flash of the tantric right um to invite you in but 
maybe they don't that get the joke, right? Tetra has I a don't joke. Know what right? Sutra looks like for this, yeah. except to sound, you know, have some political philosophy similar to, you know, I think the social singularity messages are 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 sutric versus tantric. But a lot of the course material that I'm working on now, even though it's probably kindergarten for for Bard, is is tantric in its orientation. It's tantric training wheels for certainly. Um, uh, I mean, but, you, you 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 do you say there's going to be tantric elements to it, and eventually you get there. That's how you build it. That's the best best way to build. So is my philosophy, by the way. But what you're doing is you're basically saying, first of all, you got to have a functioning society, and that functioning society has certain values that we fight for. One of them is freedom. Okay, so to have a free and open society is a value we share. That's sutra. Then you do whatever it takes. To arrive at the free and open side, because otherwise you can forget about your tantra. It's not going to happen. That's the foundation. And I always say there are certain archetypological values you also have to have. Like it's got to be a nice place to raise a family and have kids, because otherwise there's no next generation to begin with. So, so you have certain values that return in any culture that makes it civilized. Those civilized values have to be there. That's the sutra. Then beyond that, it's like, what do we do? How do we deal with the forces of nature and the forces inside ourselves, even the force of culture, if you want to call it that? And how do you tame them? And how do you use them in a controlled environment? What we call adytonology, and that's the Tantra. So mm -hmm. the Tantra has to be there. And this is exactly why I'm saying the problem I have with Christianity and Islam is that they always come back and go after the Tantric eventually, call it sin and ban it. They just can't handle it. I don't see how Christianity and Islam suddenly after thousands of years would change their mind on that point. I think Tantra has to be totally featured and included with its sophistication in our society. That's exactly what we're not going to turn any of the tech barons into a Gurdjieff. We're going to try to be the Gurdjieffs ourselves. We're going to create the gray robes based on the fact that we need more Gurdjieffs in the world. We need more people who take their spirituality seriously without condemning anybody who picks on the Sutra. But the Sutra guys... The engineers out there, the tech barons, they're wealthy like mad as well these days because data is just winning the world, beating the shit out of everything else. And they're entrepreneurial. They will discover that the environments where they live will not be that exciting. They will not be that interesting unless spirituality and arts are added. And people will demand deep spirituality as an availability, and they will demand fantastic arts in whatever environment they live. So... That's when we guys come along and said, hey, we're the symbolic order. We're the protopians. We come in through the door. We said, great stuff you built her. How about make it a little more exciting? You know, And that's where you come in with the opera houses and the cathedrals. Mm -hmm. And I think the university is what we're killing. Mistakenly, people, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to kill the church. The church has killed itself. This is, this, is, this, this, is what I'm, this is what I'm worried about, though. I want to go back to your point about the, the sinoforming of the world, right? Mm -hmm. You just said London has turned into a Chinese surveillance system. Next thing you know, they're going to have social credit and boom, you're dead, right? I feel like from, let's see, what was the years? From 2017 to 2021. It was crypto winter. And during that time, during that time, all the developers were fucking around with NFTs and DeFi and bullshit. 
It was bloodless. It had lost all vestiges of the moral core of the Bitcoin white paper. And it's there. It's there. It's absolutely there. Bitcoin white paper is dripping with a moral core, even though it's nerd speak. Because it, it has certain assumptions embedded in, embedded in it. When we got to NFTs and all this other garbage, for example, it's now to the point where you saw that they lost five years building nothing of any use and in, 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 in at least uniting against an enemy. And that enemy is power, the yes. powerful, the, the, um, the boy pharaohs in, you know, in collaboration with the pillar saints and the problem with that is if we can't get them a little bit of inspiration to it, the very least turn back to the mission, which is to create this consent-based order, which is to create this free and open society, the sensocracy that you describe, then uh, they're going to be building, they're going to be building amusements and bullshit or tools for for the for the boy pharaoh to use to keep us suppressed so that's you know if it's all based on money that that's you know it's all based on money and code that is that is the bloodlessness that i'm concerned about that is why this i have this sense of urgency but i also understand that you can't just make it happen and i understand that but i'm wondering if there is at least an entry point there, a, a, an interface point between the two-headed phallus. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I agree totally. Okay. Um, people are not aware that there are two paradigms here. So the lost years you're talking about is when these guys who were pioneers fell back into the old paradigm and thought they would serve the old paradigm. So they got obsessed with the money instead of the data. They moved from data to money, like finding the money and get paid to do something, which is like, uh, how about creating an original work of art but make it digital? But original works of art have disappeared in history forever. Mass duplication happened in 1450, it's called the printing press. Now it's super mass duplication, no cost at all of the processing of that mass duplication. So these guys don't even get technology. We have to teach them what technology is and how technology works and what technology does to us as human beings. That's philosophical work. That's what you're doing, Max. That's what I'm doing. Andrew's doing it spiritually as well. We try to make these guys figure out what is timeless and what is time-specific and separate the two. And whenever it's a dialectical process, whenever you lose self-confidence, you lose your position in the new paradigm because you're there without knowing it. And then you fall back into trying to aspire towards the old paradigm. It's a bit like you're out on the streets of Paris. You just started the revolution. And suddenly you get second thoughts because somebody yelled at you for being a revolutionary. So you tried to escape and tried to get into Versailles. But the guys in Versailles wouldn't even let you in. Those are the lost years. That's exactly what those lost years are. They still think the old paradigm has power. They still think it's about politics. They still think it, it's about old industry and advertising and shit. What you just said about, you know, having spent tons of years on NFTs and shit, it's nothing compared to people who still go into the advertising industry. 
Educating yourself to become an advertiser <laughs> in 2024 is like educating yourself to become a slave owner in 1905. You're a bit late <laughs> to the game. <laughs> you know, you're late to the game. It's over. Slavery is over, right? Advertising is over. So we hate it. We hate it. You can't be more hated. Educate yourself to become an advertiser. It's like telling a guy, okay, if you walk into a bar, out of 1,000 women, 994 women spit you in the face as soon as they see you. Go home and commit suicide. You're done. Because that's how much people hate you. Advertisers are even more hated than slave owners when we think about it, seriously. So, because we hate spam. So, the they don't even understand the new paradigm. We have to do all the work we're doing. Max, you're doing it too. We have to do all this work of going through philosophically and try to understand what the new paradigm is like. And then we have to say... It's not even formed yet, but we know it's going to happen because data has taken over the world and money is now secondary. Attentionalism has taken over from capitalism. None of us looks into the wallet first. It's still about the money. No, it isn't. Money is secondary. The first thing we do is look into our calendar. We look at what we spend our time on, which is a spiritual thing. Attentionalism is much more spiritual than capitalism. It starts with, no, I don't have time for that. Or I have time for that. That's the first thing we ask. And it's not, we can't get paid to waste our time on shit. If we do, we're still second, second class citizens, right? Because we're still capitalists. Attentionism takes over the world. Digital takes over the world. We're moving in that direction. We are convinced it's going to happen. We see this gradually happening. It's a very, it's a dialectical process and it's full of pain and mistakes and failures. And I've become pretty cool throughout the years by just seeing these guys say, let them make the mistake first because they're not listening to me anyway right now. I will tell them so I can tell them afterwards, I told you so 10 years ago, which I do constantly, but then I'll let them make the mistake. And when they made the mistake, then they come back to me and say, why did we do this? Because you didn't listen. Okay, why didn't we listen? Because you're not interested in culture and arts and spirituality, and I am. I love you for being a great engineer, but you're building empty forms. You're building buildings. You're building transportation links, but you're not building content. And I'm doing content, and I'm an expert on content, and I defend the content builders. So now you need the content put into the system. If you even listened to your wife, she would have told you, and that's what we need to do next. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, Max, about, you know, my reaction to the gray robes and there's there's humor in there. There's something humorous about it. And I think that's what makes it kind of tantric in the way in the, that you mean. Um, the fact that somebody might say, oh, this sounds like a cult. I mean, you know that that's not the guy you want because they they don't get the they don't get the the artful, you know, ironic kind of joyful humor of, of the whole mission. Oh, we want the guy who says, oh, it's a cult. I want to join. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> of course yeah. we do. Exactly. Exactly. I was sitting with Owen Cox, our dear Owen, a few months ago, and we sort of elaborated with similar ideas. And we said, okay, it's the Tech Masons instead of the Freemasons. And Tech Masons was just such a horrible name. We just knew it wouldn't fly. And then you came along, picked up something with Scott Alexander, twisted around Max, and we owe it to you. You meant the Grey Robes. It just stuck. Now we're stuck with it. We call it the Grey Robes, but that's what it is. And the Freemasonry is not built by the chief. The Freemasonry is built by the priest character who then invites the chief. And this is where the chief gets the strength from to go out of the world and lead. That's how you do it. 
It is the digital priest we're oh, talking Oh, and speaking of archetypes, he's the trickster. He's an artist. He's 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 a full yeah. scale multi artist. Yeah, and his dark Renaissance fits perfectly into this because the dark Renaissance that he and Raven and the other guys are doing is the artistic equivalent of we trying to do. So together with the dark Renaissance, like the gray robes constitute perfect example of trying to get a symbolic order. We're not going to be the only ones in the world to do this, that's for sure. There are going to be other guys, for also probably in other languages, who do very similar things. This comes naturally after the tech barons have taken over the world. The tech barons have started to look around for, maybe we should add some culture to our fucking fancy skyscrapers we're building, right? Yes, <laughs> you should. We're here. Yeah. And architecture is the first place for that, because once they realize that they have a skyscraper they're going to build and somebody walks into the room and says, that's kind of a banal phallic structure. Can't we do something more innovative? There are architects who do that. You know, Saadid architects, my absolute favorites in London, are already in Prospera planning to build, you know, this town to themselves, which is way nicer than the first buildings they're building at the moment. I hope it's going to happen, but they're fantastic. So architecture is the opening for that for the arts and you can't do architecture well without thinking spiritually because it has to be spiritually attractive it's a very spiritual art form i i have Absolutely. a picture of the shah's mosque in in my first presentation and it, and it and it looks like i mean it looks like a psychedelic fractal but it was done in the 1600s it's like there was there was there some sort of Sufi influence there? What's going on? What is submission like? You know, because that level of beauty. I mean, the mosques. I, I'm I, I join you in my my skepticism about about Islam. In terms of it, it it's um, it's doctrine and its outcomes. But I look at these mosques and I wonder, has anybody created more beautiful temples? It's really They're hard. fantastic. I love Eastern architecture in this sense because they take spirituality very seriously. And Eastern culture always makes the temples, the temples are their ultimate buildings. So I, I'll, I'm sure Andrew did similar things. I've done the Sen monasteries of Japan. I've done the Sion monasteries of Korea. Um Daoist temples, of course, loads of them in China. And, and then the fire temples of Iran. And once you see the fire temples, who are minimalist, so Rastrianism is more like Zen, it's very minimalist, then you realize that the minimalism in Muslim architecture, Islamic architecture later, is simply all the fractals on the things. It's just, it's just there's a ban on pictures of people. There's no no faces that the bound in Islamic architecture because you must never worship Muhammad because you see a picture of him. That's exactly why it's very touchy for Muslims to see the Muhammad figure portrayed in Western culture. So yeah, sure, that they invited it. So, but I would say that the psychedelic element comes from Zoroastrianism, but the formal structure is Islamic when it comes to Shia Islam, and you're talking about Iran here in the 70s. I, I just wonder if yeah. that um, if that's an accident uh, with that. Oh, but India, Muslim. India is full of it. It's just full of amazing spiritual architecture. And it is inspiring for architects today because architects have to both know the entire history of architecture, the archetypology of construction, and paradigmatics. It's like, but well, what can we do today we couldn't do before? 
And it's it's hilarious to walk into an office of architectures today because they do AI fully. They just like they can they can switch the building and sh you know go in a little direction here and there, and they immediately get all the data on how much more expensive or cheaper the building just became because of the switch they just did, and where the materials and come from, we'll, how much we'll longer it will take not. to build it. You know, the every every data they need to present to the guy who's going to build a fucking skyscraper or whatever, they've got it instantly. It's all data points anyway. That's the future work anyway, but the architects are already there because they can afford it. But also like uh, when I went to Alhambra or whatever in, in Spain, you know, this beautiful thing, it's 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 sublime, but it's also, it's 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 comes from this kind of mix of culture, the syncretic culture as well. There was the Jews were there with, with all kinds of like Moses de Leon and and uh, you know the Neoplatonists and the you know the so there was a whole mix of 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 rich inf culture going on there, and I think that's always where the great you know like Venice or something like that. The great the great expressions arise in this syncretic. It's it's thing, a beautiful so. thing to trace this out. And Bard, you really um you but actually both of you guys have really gotten pulled me into this in your different ways. Um but uh tracing, for example, the lineage of um uh you know Kabbalah to um Spinoza up through you know Nietzsche and and indeed um um who who is another spinozist um Deleuze, for example Deleuze is, well yeah. he's a nietzschean as well yeah and so you get this beautiful trajectory uh philosophical trajectory that originates uh in some sense in kabbalah and now i'm understanding zoroastrianism and i'm that's becoming clearer every day i understand why you why you appreciate these the sort of twins so much um and this is another way that i without getting too platonic or too dualist too gnostic with it think that there is an element of inviting diverse types in to to this order uh, without worrying too much about whether or not they they're doctrinally a Christian or a this or a that, I think that that organic unity, that balance of unity and diversity, held together in a kind of not a stasis, but a yeah, almost like a tensegrity between the the, the diverse elements and the unifying elements. Is I, 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 I get that, but I, I have to ask the question, in all honesty, to the people who joined the Grey Robes. In what way do they take their digital age spirituality seriously? And in what way do, do they want to support other people to take their digital age spirituality seriously? Um, uh, I'm not here to save the nuclear family or anything like that at all. That That's completely secondary. Uh, you know, it, it's... When I see guys like Jordan Hall convert, all respect that he's honest about it, but it's just like the guy jumping back into some kind of nostalgic solution because it didn't really bother to go all the way through. So 
the dialectical process has to run its course. Otherwise, we're not doing anything profound here. We're not presenting an alternative to people that's serious or not. That's why I'm glad we brought up Gurdjieff, the first thing we did. I think it's a perfect starting point for this conversation. I think Gurdjieff is a great role model for the Grey Robes. And he means it. He says that this is not for everybody, it's for a few. And the few who do that, who do this work properly, thoroughly, uh, do take their own spirituality seriously. And without minding that other people don't, it's just, just a, it's a choice you make for yourself to do that, to have, you know, a real proper digital age consciousness, mm -hmm. knowing what's going on in the world. That's why people will come to us eventually to look for guidance. If we have done that work really, really well, that's why I talk about creating monasteries and things like that. We need those places to fix ourselves and to go deep. And retreat centers and things like that, I love them because that's, that's the beginning. Retreat centers have, you know, retreat centers with some people live permanently, perfect, perfect. I always work with those environments. So to take that spiritual journey seriously without being snobbish about it at all, just take it very seriously. Then you are the go-to person that people go to when they run into the crisis eventually, their own personal crisis, have their own transitions and their own transformations. And I wouldn't go too wide and say, we accept this and this and this and go so creditorily, because I don't think people would take us seriously if we do. No, then it becomes a Unitarian church, and who gives a shit about that? Exactly. Unitarian yeah. churches. That's exactly what I want to avoid. Yeah, that's exactly. not what I'm saying. Yeah. What I'm saying is people who want to really go through the, the process that I think you would call dialectic. Yes. But the dialectic is, a, is an interpersonal, is a personal and inner process, as well as an interpersonal process. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, our new course with Luke um, is interesting how Luke is framing it. It's like, how do we create a kind of symbiotic, symbiotic intelligence in a group, you know, in the Internet age, right, that is doing the work, right? This is what Gurdjieff calls it, the work. So the work means the deep spiritual work. It doesn't mean, you know, digging <clears throat> your garden. It just means, you know, the, the real deep spiritual work how do you do that with a bunch of people you know uh in the digital in the digital era i mean we have to ask that question and we have to figure those those things out right i mean so i think that is kind of the frame of what you're doing as well uh the, i sense uh, max there are going to be people who think they're going to be the gym ruts of the world who are like as soon as someone says metaphysics i'm going to get my pistol right? <laughs> yeah yes. he's a super um just like enlightenment science kind of guy spirituality to him is is woo woo bullshit get my gun right and then on the other hand you're going to have people who are super pillar sainty and imagine that they are just noetic beings who are inhabiting these bodies right <laughs> that are temporary and they're just waiting to burst out and join with the the good and they're eager right, to get an audience way. and they speak through cliches the pillar saints they're eager to have an audience very quickly and they always speak through cliches that's pillar saints for you what i think that we need that there needs to be a synthesis of these two types and the gray robes represent that and it sounds to me like gurdjieff is an exemplar of how that might look Maybe not a synthesis. I don't know. I I don't. I'm not sure if you could, if it's necessary. Again, like a guy like Jim, we all love Jim, right? And he's what he is. He's like, 
he's great at what he does and there's no converting Jim. He's way more spiritual than he admits. And he is That's probably very yes. spiritual in his own kind of way or yes. anyway. So, so I agree. So, so don't like, I don't want to synthesize anybody necessarily. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to commit to like by way of doctor or doctrine or dogma uh, committing to the idea of metaphysical spookies. No, no. The, the, the thing is, about. the thing, the thing is this: you avoid the pillar saint and the boy Pharisee of the world by finding people who say that I want to go for priesthood or I want to go for being the chief, and I want to do it by appreciating what I'm not when I find it in others. Mm-hmm. That's appreciating how spirituality starts. Spirituality starts with me admiring, really admiring other men for having things that I don't have. That's the lack you were talking about at the beginning. I was, that's, you know, that's yeah. very profound. It has right? to start. Recognize there. your own lack and then yeah, exactly. and appreciate exactly. other people. Wow. The narcissists will never admit to have any limitations whatsoever because they'll go after anything to get attention. The exact opposite of the narcissist, the guy says that I admire people for having qualities that I don't have. I know I don't have that quality. I'm not, a, I know I'm not good at that. I have no ambition to be good at that. I love the fact that the brother of mine is good at that and I'm not. It starts I mean, with that admiration. Men's work right. starts with admiration, training that. And that's you avoid becoming a pillar saint or a boy pharaoh, because the pillar saint kills the boy pharaoh, and the boy pharaoh kills the pillar saint. Now, if they work together, they become priests. And well, that's what Max that's meant. You avoid yeah. that. Yeah. Because through their limitation, they go through the dialectical process. They do the spiritual work for themselves, and then they can be the priest and the chief. And the priest well, leads and- the spiritual work, and the chief leads the rest, right? Just in the pragmatic sense, when you have an organization of any sort, like especially a company, and most organizations are going to have to have profit, that is revenue and excessive cost. That's what it means to live as a company or an organization or a nonprofit or anything. You have to have revenue and excessive cost or you're dead. When you have an organization like that, people collaborating for revenues and excessive costs, you do need that people who are more head oriented, people who are more heart oriented, relational, and people who are more gut oriented, get shit done. If you don't have that, then you got a bunch of abstract onanists, which I can tend to be that. You know what I mean? So I I know that I have to partner with people who can get shit done or i know i have to find it within myself even though i hate doing it dotting the i's crossing the t's paying the bills calling that guy so we can make sure we have an event space whatever right um and so it's not merely that it's trying to achieve that alignment and i think shamanoids understand that head heart gut alignment is important even though they're primarily head heart right um that that you're gonna have to tag team with the sovereign to to get to really get stuff done and so i'm trying to imagine what that tag team looks like that's why i wanted to be there when if i had known balaji was really going to be there not show up via zoom that i might have gone down to prospera this time right so that I could have a conversation with him about this part. Maybe it's not time. I don't know. Maybe no, the conversation is coming, certainly. There's so many connections here, so that's certainly going to happen. Yeah. Well, it will be interested. I, I can assure you that. 
So don't don't worry, that's gonna happen pretty soon too. Because he's he's gonna get worried when he runs up against the wall with other people around him who are less spiritual than he is, and then he's gonna understand he needs more of it rather than less of it. I'm totally convinced of that. You you can't you can't really achieve anything big time unless you both do real, symbolic, and imagine. You gotta have a complete netocracy in this case. We only have the first netocracy today, that's big tech. Now, my pointer is that. When I say monastery rather than academy as a starting point, it's that you really work Monday to Friday and you need to make your profit because you need to pay your bills. Money is unavoidable. But you work Monday to Friday preparing for Sunday. And Sunday people come to you. The Sunday mass is really the other version of going to see the shaman in the forest if you're nomadic. That's when you sort out your things. That's when you hear a story that's bigger than you. That's when you hear that, oh, the meaning of you going to work Monday to Friday making this money, there's a meaning way beyond that. This is what Jim Rock is missing. There's a meaning way beyond just making the money out of work Monday to Friday. And here is what it is. And this story I'm telling you is credible in the age where you live. That's why we can't go to church, Christian church, on Sundays and hear about Christ on the cross and all that because it makes no sense any longer in the digital age. That's two paradigms ago. That's feudal. Christianity that's why, Jim, that's why Jim Rutt went all in on Game B. Yes, yes. Game yes. B is pillar saint. He uh, is spiritual. Saint. That's the whole point. He wanted that to he create spiritual. spiritual communities called Game B communities. Exactly. Yeah. He's spiritual. So the trick is that we will work both Monday to Friday, but actually our presentation and our interactivity with other people is on the Sunday. That's when the gray robes come into the picture. The tech baron speaks Monday to Friday. He speaks to his, his corporation. He speaks to his business. He speaks to his shareholders. He speaks to people who invest in him and want to make money out of it. It's in Prospera too. Those guys who are on Prospera want to make money. It's a corporation they're running. But they are, they are the top guys Monday to Friday. But what the hell do you do on the Sunday? Oops, they haven't thought of that yet, haven't they? Well, people are pre-programmed deeply, biologically, archetypologically to want to go somewhere on a Sunday and get spiritual nourishment. And these guys can't do it and you can't do it with the old stories. You need <laughs> that new story, the new combination of classical, which is, in my case, I think Eastern spirituality is a much stronger card to start with. The Silk Road tried also being our alternative in the sense that it's the religions of decentralization. If you're going to go for old religion and try to renew them and renovate them and use them again, use the ones that preached decentralization along the trade routes. Much, much better if we're going to do decentralization fundamentally yeah. as a concept. And Gertrude said you need a school. So... So uh, yes, yeah. so that's what that those kind of religions are. They're schools. Um, you know, they're not just monolithic organizations where you get a bunch of you know, propositions about what tr truth is, and then you know, is it, so you're, is it you're working like yeah. you're really working on yourself. You're, you're you know you're you're really doing the work. You know, and but, isn't, but isn't you can't do it yourself. You have to do it within. Sorry, I keep. No, no, I don't want to interrupt you. That's what I don't no, want no, to do. No. I'm just excited. So yeah, you go. But yeah, the Gerd Jeff and fourth way is it's an impossibility within the community. 
And, and that's exactly what we call it in narratology. We call it a sort of dialectical deadlock when you realize that you need both logos, mythos, and pathos for the community to function. And you need to teach people that these three things, these three ways of doing narrative are irreducible to one another. And there's no hierarchy between them. There are three different hierarchies. You need the logos, the mythos, and the pathos because that's how human beings create their stories. We call it narratology. Those yeah. three are the exact equivalent of Gurdjieff's three things. So Gurdjieff starts with those three things. Then Gurdjieff tries to see if there's a fourth way. It, it's, he sets up this pursuit of the fourth way. I think it's perfect for the digital age it, it, because we're doing technology and new innovations and their events are happening. Technology is now, it, it's now developing so rapidly. That the things I said controversial 25 years ago, no, take it for granted. Like, oh, the paradigm shifts, their information technological paradigm shifts. We look at history this way today because everything has to make sense out of that. One day we build the internet, we connect everything in the world, and the internet would even survive as human beings. All of that is now absolutely given. That was, mm -hmm. that was totally weird 25 years ago, now it's given. So since that is given now, we can then start looking at Gertrude's fourth way as our pursuit. We can start by saying the fourth way is probably impossible. We assume it's impossible, but we want to pursue it. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go outside of the community where we can't hurt anybody, create a fucking tantric uh, uh, cylinder or something like that, a tantric, tantric container and where we can do our technology and experiment. And you guys, the smart ones of you guys in there are going to come to us eventually and see how this is going. Yeah, I mean, the fourth way is perfect for the, for the gray ropes. It's perfect he says the fourth way is the way of the sly person, right? Because... Most people can't do the fourth way because you kind of have to balance too many things together. You have to be too dynamic. It's it's impossible. Like you can't be a monk and a faker and and a, and a yogi at the same time, right? That for most people have to be one of those things, right? But the fourth way, the the audacity of the fourth way is that you do all of them in in your kind of secret. You know, you don't go off to the monastery, you're doing your monastery in the middle of Manhattan or something, or, you know, in the middle of the most busy place. So, uh, so I find that very interesting. Yeah, I think it's, it's, like, is... it's like if you succeed at the fourth way, you can only temporarily succeed ever. We call that the infinite now, the experience itself in our work. So you can only uh -huh. temporarily succeed if you do. And when you do, you must be kept away from people. <laughs> Well, yeah, far yeah, away yeah. from people because that's that terrifying that you could be in a place where you can actually handle that dialectical deadlock and right on top of it. Well, Gurdjieff had to sort of push everybody away. He had to like you know run yeah. away. From, people were coming after him, but he was like, you know, kicking out kicking out all of his disciples and <laughs> because because he yeah, didn't have the bit, internet yet. He didn't have. The it's internet a bit yet. much. He's a perfect prophet for us because he didn't have the internet yet. So he couldn't succeed yeah. at the time. Let's see if we can do the fourth way now. So and Max, think, have, we established that, that, have we established that Gurdjieff is the uh, patron saint of, of the gray robes? Uh, I think we've established that tonight. I think so. Uh, what do you say, Max? Well, I need to finish Max? Beelzebub. And then, <laughs> and, then I'll, and then I'll be able to, because, you know, I'm an acolyte when it comes to uh, Gurdjieff. But, so um, Max Borders has a veto on Gurdjieff being the prophet of the great. I world. don't have a veto. I don't have a veto. But you I think me. I think Andrew and I just gave you one. Yeah. Because we, oh, okay. we voted for We voted for So no, you, you, I, you, I, the jury is still out. The jury is still I, out. I am still, Max has decided I just don't to still want, be out. 
I don't want to jump both feet into something that I know so very little about. We don't However, have to tell anybody about it. We can just keep it between our, ourselves. You know, it I think I think it sounds fantastic if Gurdjieff is, is is at the center of this. I will tell you that in my own clumsy and unsophisticated way, have have done a lot of. You'll see this in in um, in some of the the work I've done for the Gray Robes course is created these created these little mashups um, of archetypes and done a lot of work with the head heart gut triadic structure and the cross fertilization of that into creating the archetypes you'll see all of that they're fun they're 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 not rooted in nothing but they're they're a, a playful expression for me of trying to impart some of this stuff um I, I look forward to sharing that with you well there you go because head is logos gut is obviously pathos and heart is the mythos mm -hmm. there you go it, it, it's it's we finished hegel in the sense hegel wasn't finished hegel is brilliant but actually it rhymes perfectly with Gurdjieff. and nietzsche hegel nietzsche Gurdjieff, all three great they're actually I have really become super interested in the reconciliation of Hegel and Nietzsche. Yeah. My entire philosophical project. That's what those guys have been doing. About that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and, and so um, it was Sweeney who got me into Gurdjieff and it was you who got me into Hegel and Nietzsche. And I thought never in a million years would I get into Hegel, but boy, was I wrong. <laughs> Yeah. He's the best teacher ever on how to think. It's all about the method. Mm -hmm. Forget about Hegel's other ideas. It's all about his methodologies. This is just superb. Yeah. He makes you think, critically think. It's once you understand Hegelian dialectics, just like, oh, there's no other way you can think. It's just, this is how you must think constantly. It hurts well, when you realize other people can't do that. So, triadic yeah. structure that that yeah. becomes a fractal, you know, as you, you carry on. And he eventually says, oh, this all settles in the, the absolute spirit. And, and that that is, uh, you know, we see that in the efflorescence of civilizations in the form of art, religion, and philosophy. But I think this ongoing pattern, this ongoing fractal pattern that never has an end, never has an absolute, but it ever effogende, uh geist, is what is what is really beautiful and that's the methodological hegelianism that you prompted in me um and i already had a just a very very slight interest in the um the way of the the fakir the yogi and the priest uh before before encountering sweeney the monk and, the fakir the and the monk yeah the monk because rather yeah the monk yeah. And the monk is the feeling person, right? The faker mm -hmm. is the guy like who's just doing physical things, incredibly challenging, contorting physical things all and you know, he's he's like one of those strange guys in India that, you know, stand on their head all day long and and the, the monk is is just all about emotion and feeling and and uh you know, and the and the yogi is mind actually. The yogi is the is the logos guy. Yeah, yogi's you know, is logos, monkey's mythos, and yeah. fakir is pathos. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. These patterns return constantly. Yeah. Pattern constantly, and they make perfect sense.
And actually, when you do gender on it, which is not done by Gurdjieff, when you do gender on this, you discover that the feminine lies with the mythos on its own as the uniter of the other two, because the masculine is this dichotomy, this fight between the logos and the pathos. Here's where Camille Pag and I agree. Mm -hmm. What makes sense is that the logos and the pathos dichotomy, which is a conflict that's never solved, is the masculine, whereas the feminine is mythos. So feminine stands for unity. But problem then with the mythos is that because it's united, it has a hard time differentiating between fact and fiction. Mm -hmm. which men do easily if they keep the priest-chief separation within themselves. The priest is the guy of the fact. The, 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 the chief is the guy of the fiction for men. So the, the, when I studied this, and I was almost a Taoist, like, like our dear Bonita Roy, almost became a Taoist when I studied. Then I was offered to convert to Zoroastrianism in 1992 and chose that instead, because Taoism is essentially Chinese Zoroastrianism. But when I studied, and I started Yin and Yang, I discovered that, okay, so Taoist philosophers discovered like hundreds of years ago that there was something about Yin and Yang, which is just a dichotomy, not dialectical process, that made it hard to explain how the whole thing moved. There has to be some kind of split within it, within the splits themselves. And that's, of course, on the Yang side. The Yang is Yang and Yong in, in contemporary Taoism, which that is again a triad. So the Yang becomes a, the Yang and the Yong. The Yang becomes the pathos. Because pathos is every point oh, logos. The Yong becomes the logos. And therefore, we can allow the Yin to be the mythos. In fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another try to get it. It's repeated. It's the same thing as Gurdjieff is working with. The same thing Hegel is working with. They repeat constantly. This try it's repeated constantly. I think fundamentally this is the understanding of spirituality. And that's what we did. Mm -hmm. We finally mm -hmm. did it in the process event. This book is all about setting these things straightforward and calling it narratology, which we promote as a philosophical discipline. It should be its own philosophical discipline. All this work done on deconstruction of literature and deconstruction of history that philosophers done in the last 100 years is its own philosophical discipline. We don't need ontology, epistemology, and feminology to be separate. They really were united. Definitely ontology and epistemologies onto epistemology after Hegel. I would argue even that phenomenology, now we more and more understand really what it is because we understand it better and better through data. We understand what senses are. We understand what sight is, what, what hearing things are. We understand what it means to have an experience. We get that better and better. Now we're doing that in cognitive science today. We're discovering we can unite those. Rather, what philosophy should deal with is narratology. Human beings are creatures who create stories about themselves for themselves. Nobody else is really interested. There's nobody else except for humans who are interested in it. So these stories that we created by ourselves are narratological, and they must not be reduced to anything less than the three categories that they are, logos, mythos, and pathos. Again, the mind and, and the heart and the gut, Gurdjieff. Hmm. So our story here is the uh, is the gray robes. That's. I think this is a perfect foundation for the gray robes. I think it is. I think Gurdjieff is key. We can have, we can have other prophets. We can have other saints if you want to. No problem at all. But he is between East and West. He's a precursor. He was before digital arrived. But he's a really good master in understanding these things for us. To, it's a very, very good starting point. And in a way, you can't leave Gurdjieff as well. Because I ultimately think 
the fourth way is an impossibility and therein lies its beauty. The, the fourth way is like if you could live within the Hegelian absolute rather than just realizing that it's correct. The Hegelian absolute is the narratology. But the fourth way is like, oh, there's something beyond narratology. There's something beyond the Hegelian absolute. And this is what Gurdjieff is searching for. And why not? The ultimate spiritual mission. Let's connect this um, in, in, the, in the few minutes we have left, if you don't mind me suggesting that we connect this to this sense of mission, this catal catalyzing something to be a response to an enemy. And I jokingly said, not so jokingly, I, I, I said to a Andrew in our first conversation about this, that we that our enemy is that which slinks from the coital bed of mama money and papa power right of business and government it is fascism it is chinese state capitalism it is it is this unholy alliance that is censoring people controlling people trying to get us to use a certain currency and block the exits it is trying to control us it is Klaus Schwab. It is the dark dialectic, right? Yes, totally yeah. agree. Totally agree. This is the it idea. could be called mechanical man in the 1920s. That's what Gertrude would have called it. Maybe there's another word for it today. I think so. that I think that we have to stand up as philosophers and rethink uh, the possibilities because otherwise communist China is going to win us a model and Europe and America will be exactly like communist China. Because that's where business and government are moving, and they love it. Yeah, they do. Yeah, it's it's it. it um, uh, what uh, what's his name? Um, Austrian Schumpeter. Schumpeter. Yes, warned about this. Says the next phase of capitalism was not post capitalism. It was going back in mar the marriage of business and government, and it was fascism. And it was a mix of mercantilism, aristocracy, and um, and capitalism, and that's what we're finding. Um, so it is. What's the guy who talked about the iron law of oligarchy? It is that writ large in in some respects. Yeah, uh, communist China is absolutely fascist. Yeah, Russia is clumsily trying to imitate it and become fascist. The Russians are not very good at it because they drink too much compared to the Chinese. But that's where it's at. America and Europe are heading there. I think in the sense you and I have also studied NS Lyons recently, and, and he's right in his critique here, because the hard managerialism of China is the one that Russia aspires to, but the soft managerialism of America and Europe is not better, it's just later to the game. But once you give power to the guys who already have power, especially the guys who have power because nobody else wanted the job and they actually lack self-confidence, which is precisely what politicians are like in Europe and America today. When you give them more power, they'll grab it. When you give the guys who run the big old industrial corporations with their profits, if you give them this power, they'll grab it. The tech barons will grab it too, without knowing any better if we don't step in and teach them that there's a new spirituality coming from the digital age that the internet is actually supporting and fostering, and you need to join that. Because 
Otherwise, all the guys flock to Versailles. And if all the guys flock to Versailles, the streets of Paris will fail, the revolution will fail, and we're stuck in Versailles forever. We should have left a long time ago. It's not a, it's not a given historically that the streets of Paris win. What is given, what is given is that the internet wins, but it's still the tool in a sense that can be controlled and we can apparently create a surveillance state, uh, you know, absolute terror and horror. We need Perfectly to make feasible. it into the knife to kill the tyrant. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. We need to turn the internet into the knife to kill the tyrant. And business and government are now uniting, and that's exactly what fascism is. Yes. Hmm. It's it's unbelievable. Like I could I could just take the work of Mussolini and say that it was someone else. Choose your favorite progressive, American progressive, and nobody would know the difference. Exactly. So the sutra here is therefore against this merger of business and government to see that as a sutra. The more tantric level of this is to understand it's really new paradigm coming with completely new opportunities, but it also requires a new sense of spirituality and it requires new art. We can't go around doing the old way of doing spirituality and art because that obviously couldn't stop the business government unity from happening, could stop fascism. Old art, old spirituality serves fascism because otherwise it would have stopped fascism from happening. So we need to immunize ourselves by creating a sense of spirituality and artistic movement, which is so strong, the gray robes. I lost you for a second there. Did you, did you lose Alexander also, Max? I, I did, I lost him for about maybe- We lost like, uh, we lost your- your oh, 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 the boom. Of course you lost. We it lost because, the boom. Was, because the tantric ghost walked into this conversation but... and stopped from being recorded. So if yeah. if spirituality and art as we know them had worked, they would have stopped this new fascism from happening. They would have prevented business and government from unifying the way they've done in China and are about to happen in Europe and America. That would have been stopped, but they failed. So they're inadequate. We need a new spirituality. And when you need you a are. new sense of art, which is so grand and so fantastic that it can be completely anti-fascist and therefore has to be on the side of decentralization. Hmm. Yeah. Our entire I... search we're doing right now is looking for, do we have any schools of spirituality? Do we have any artistic impulse somewhere where we can start from and build from that actually could work to promote decentralization as the alternative to centralization? Cool, yeah. I mean, I, I, another conversation might be, what the hell is this art, new art that you're talking about? Like, Yeah, we call it dark renaissance. It's just the beginning. We're just playing around with the first tools, but <laughs> we're up against that enemy, certainly. Yes, I agree. I mean, I'm religion is a little um, bit different, but yeah. I th think the, the we have to look for the emergent art. And in the indie space, in stuff like this, you start to get you start to get some interesting players, um, voices that come out of the art world. For example, I know, I know this sounds crazy, but just think about think about famous people, celebrities who are who are now indie celebrities. Like, um, what's the British guy who uh, was accused of? Uh, doing stuff with young women uh, out of turn and he was um 
On House of Cards, that guy? No. No, no, no. Um the 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 guy from London who does his own show. Um Oh shit. Of course this is going to happen to me while I'm being <laughs> Um Andrew can cut it out. He's famous. He's a good-looking guy. He slept with a bunch of women, but he's Oh, a, Russell, Russell, Brand. Russell Brand. Russell Brand. Russell Brand. Yeah. Russell Brand is has something there. Right? Yeah, but, but it's but, a but, pop this, culture this, version. But, yeah, but this is my problem with the metamodernist. Although I love them for the sense that they they try to point out in hindsight afterwards was metamodern as if it's a new sensibility and in, it, it's a new cultural trend or whatever, they still work within the whole context of staying within the old paradigm. I think we're not there yet, to be honest about it. I think the imaginary comes later. I think we have to we have to unify ourselves around the symbolic first. And then symbolic, of course, includes art. Imaginary is what we usually call political. But but um I'd say it's too early. I, I'd I'd say that we have only begun to formulate the very conditions for something like the gray robes to happen, which replaces the Freemasons in the previous paradigm. And um, I want the university killer to happen. I want us to become redundant of universities and academies as we know them. Uh, I think it's certainly going to happen. The technologies are there. Um, it's the next form of digitalization that's going to happen. But but let's let's keep in touch and continue this conversation and see where we're heading. Yeah, I, I would advise against giving examples already that that's the new thing or whatever, because I think we make the mistake no. of, I think it's just confusing for the conversation as a whole as well. I think, I think it's confusing yeah. fashion and art because I think people are confused with between fashion and art, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, and, the, and the real artists that come, they don't have like art written all over their foreheads. You know, but they're not going to come from the art world, and I and know they might not even really, come really, really well. I work with the art world. Knows it's not going to produce the next wave of art in the classical yeah. sense. The, whatever is art next is going to come from a whole new world. Again, yeah. they, they know it's going to be the streets of Paris rather than Versailles. The art exactly. world is also spinning its last few loops and and trying. It's so damn commercialized now that it's more or less it has no energy left to it that's what and, and this is why at. i so much appreciate about what you you said a couple of times and i totally agree and um it was like a fantastic meeting of the minds is that a lot of this stuff needs to be reserved for the private and the underground that yes is, that is the that is the this has to begin with the tantric it has to be massaged and 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 cultivated within the tantric universe Yes, and the sacred and the private are coming back big time as a dialectical reaction against the whole idea that we're flaunting ourselves to the world to see everything. We right. all went pornographic yeah. for 20 years and it didn't work. Right. And Facebook is, is just horrible. It's just nasty. Which we, is what you not. meant by art, right? I mean, that is yeah. the art thing. The art has yeah. to be. So uh, sacred and private is where art can prosper. Yeah. And yeah. sacred and private is also defending the sacred and the private. It's exactly what decentralization people do against centralization. The fascists hate sacred and private. They hate it. Mm -hmm. The fascists build huge roads, huge avenues where you cannot hide with cameras everywhere, and then they put tanks on those roads. That's what fascists do. They hate the tiny little roads where we can where we can hide. They hate the, the tank. Yeah. So the return of the sacred and the private is absolutely core to this. That's where it's going to happen. That's where we can create our little safe houses where we can create these amazing things that are the response to that. And that's where anti-fascism will bloom. Hmm. Fabulous. So for moving towards a closing here, 
um, I hope some people listening to this will come and and do this course, you know, with with Max. You know, me and Alexander will be there, and some other people. That... We are we are parallax this spring. This is this is Barton yeah. Max Barton Barton Borders totally. I'm I doing the Prosen event course with Tom and Mark, and I'm and, and at the same time parallel with the Prosen event course, then uh, Max Borders is going to come on here and do the Gray Roads. And you now we have Greg Henriquez as well, and also yes. even Zach Stein, Stein is doing a course. And there are great overlaps between yet. these courses this spring. Absolutely, which is I fantastic. want. I I my. My hope is that is that the the live show portion of this course after i deliver all of my you know ruminations on things and slide decks and whatever that it becomes more like this that we are that it's real-time collaboration unfolding before our very eyes that we are at the genesis of something that we don't know what it looks like yet we see some contours but the more we have conversations the more we we work together and think together, feel together, the more this stuff starts to unfold and and blossom. And I, um, I'm excited about that. So it's, it's probably less a course. I mean, of course, we want to answer questions. You know, Bard's been doing this shit for years. I have too, uh, frankly. Um, it's taken a different turn. Um, Sweeney, you know, you've got silver hair. You're a good looking man. But you're no spring chicken like us, either, I guess. But that experience, we of course want to bring that to bear to anybody who comes in the course, but we also want to invite people into the collaborative process, I, th I think. Great yeah. final words for this conversation. Wonderful, yeah. Thank you, Max. Thank you, Alexander. Max. Thank you, Andrew. Max, you've got terrific. the Holy Spirit, uh, and that's why we asked you, I asked you to do this, because there's something really alive here, and so... Hallelujah. Love you guys. Talk to you soon, I hope. Big love. Big love. Guys.